Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi, it's Fraser here. Regular listeners will already be aware of this, but if you're tuning in for the first time or after a break, you might like to know that the Spiked podcast is now available on video. Every episode is now filmed so you can watch as well as listen to us every week as we help you make sense of a world gone mad. So check out the Spike podcast on video when you get the chance, either on the Spiked YouTube channel or via the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Now, onto this week's Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever, we have Spiked Steps editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, vaccine passports and the pandemic, Dominic Cummings and the Tories' authoritarian streak. So we're out of lockdown. The mask mandates are over pretty much everywhere, apart from a few select places. But we're sort of heading towards something slightly more authoritarian still, potentially. The government is going to introduce vaccine passports in September. Tom, what do you make of this? I think it's a really alarming move for a couple of reasons. I mean, all of us have talked about vaccine passports until we're blue in the face. It's deeply authoritarian. Mm. You create a two-tier society. In a free society, you should not make people's ability to access certain public spaces and to engage properly in social and cultural life contingent on their health status. I mean, it's just a very alarming thing to do, which is why, you know, 20 years ago, people like Boris Johnson were saying he would eat an ID card if he was ever asked to present it. Mm. Becoming a papers please society is a problem. All those arguments are very well made. I think the thing that's more explicit in this recent kind of round of discussion about vaccine passports, because it's been very kind of on again, off again yeah. in the past few months, really, is how cynical it is. I mean, it's quite clearly a, a threat and kind of a bluff, really. I mean, the way in which they took away the um, ability to potentially still get into a venue which required a vaccine passport if you had a negative test made it very clear what this is about, which is yeah. trying to get the under 30s to get vaccinated um, because there's still a large proportion of them who have been offered the jab and either haven't got around to doing it or have actively rejected it. So it's just a sign that we've gotten into this phase where everything is just so incredibly cynical and that it's almost acceptable because of this greater goal of tackling COVID to threaten your own population, to kind Mm. of bullshit them, to bluff them. And that's something which on its own terms, I think is very alarming. You know, we talk a lot about the way in which fear has been used and which threats have been used, you know, the Brexit referendum being a perfect example. But when Remainers were going around talking about the economic Armageddon, you know, when David Cameron gets up and saying, this is going to hit you in the pocket, we didn't expect him to submit us to that economic Armageddon himself personally. But in this situation, (laughs) it's just the threat is made and delivered by the government. This is a very strange set of situation to find ourselves in. So it's not just how terrifying vaccine passports are on their own terms. Even if it is just a bluff, that's yeah. a problem, I think. Yeah, I wanted to go, get into that a bit. I mean, do we think it's a bluff? Because a lot of people have suggested it's just completely unworkable, especially the way in which, you know, the idea sort of started off as clubs, then slowly morphed into pubs and then potentially other venues as well. Is it, could it really happen? Well, they, that the whole point is that it's so incredibly vague. And I think it, 
you don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I think they're making it vague on purpose. So now you have ministers coming out and saying it could be nightclubs, theatres, churches, anywhere that there's basically a large crowd in which you, I mean, that there are numerous areas where that would be relevant. I mean, if you have a small packed pub, does that mean that then has to have vaccine passport? If you are, uh, you know, if you're doing it for a specific area like a nightclub, is it punters and the, 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 you know, the delivery drivers who deliver the beer? Is it the people who go in and set up the stage? Where does it end? It essentially is saying that this is going to become, uh, it's going to become not the norm to not have to show your vaccine status if it's going to be in all these public places. I think, you know, the the point Tom makes about it being um, cynical is really crucial because throughout the pandemic, there has been this reliance on and actually sort of fetishization of behavioral psychology yeah. in this way that it's this, it's this really like, cool thing that, you know, Cummings and other people really um, st- stand by as a means of managing crowds. Mm. And actually, you know, there are, there's a level of that in which you need to think about how you get across messaging to people in times of a crisis. But this is just pretty much blatantly saying, we know that people don't agree with what we're doing. We know that there are, there's some level of hostility to the vaccine, particularly among young people. Rather than treating people seriously and engaging them in that discussion, we're just going to treat them like animals and kind of put the blinkers on and try and nudge them into the into the right way. The worst part of this is it's going to have a knock-on effect of making people even more hostile to the vaccine. I mean, we've said this so many times on the podcast that the you know we've been surprised even by the take up of the vaccine the i remember back in december feeling like you know there was going to be a real problem mm. with vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax messaging it really hasn't been you've you know the queues of people all over the place actually young people are now trying to bypass the eight-week rule for pfizer to try and yeah. get it earlier because they want to go on holiday it's it's all positive and yet they're clamping down in this way which is going to make reasonable people who aren't nut jobs think, hang on a minute, why are you trying to force this down my throat? There has been some backlash um, in Parliament, for instance, you know, the the Lib Dems have said that they're going to oppose it. Labour has been almost as, you know, almost trolley-like as the government, which Mm. I think is interesting, you know, first saying, no, we don't want this, then saying, um, oh, maybe it's okay if people have a negative test. What's interesting is that they haven't yet used, or I haven't heard a Labour frontbencher use the word freedom or civil liberties. I mean, what do we make of that? I mean, a human rights lawyer as their leader as well. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, Mark Simpson (laughs) made this point on Twitter. He said, throughout the pandemic, they've just posed as the party of competent tyranny. Yeah. I mean, that I think perfectly sums it up, which is to say, we're... But we basically back everything that you do, but you're just not doing it very well, are you? Aren't you terribly hopeless? And aren't you giving (laughs) contracts to your friends? I mean, that's basically the Labour critique at this point. Um, It's been interesting to see that even at certain points, Starmer has resisted even trying to take on this issue. I mean, at one point he suggested that vaccine passports were un-British, um, but it was a very vague kind of quote. But he hasn't engaged on the substance of that debate at all. And mm. throughout lockdown, that's been the fascinating thing, is that you do have this human rights barrister on the opposition benches who has at no point even raised a peep about any of these issues. You know, such is the ridiculously cautious game he's been playing over this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we should have locked down a week earlier is this kind of substance mm. of his um, his critique. The other thing that is kind of causing chaos at the moment in the country is the so-called pingdemic. The uh, most annoying coinage of all time. <laughs> this point, yeah, I liked it the first time I heard it. To be fair. <laughs> but um, a, a record 600,000 people um, were sent a message to isolate, uh, mm-hmm. to self-isolate by the NHS app. Last week, um, for the first time in the pandemic, weirdly, despite all the lockdowns, we're now we're now finally seeing shops starting to close, supply chains starting to break down in a in a very serious way. I mean, 
how did the government not see this coming? Well, how did uh, how do they not see so many things coming? It's a classic case of sticking to the rules and sticking mm. to, you know, quite simply just bureaucratic rules of following an algorithm um, rather than thinking sensibly about these things. So if you have in a supermarket or in a care home or in any place that's, you know, integral to the running of society, uh, you know, 40% of your staff getting pinged, you've got a serious problem. And any sensible person would then make the decision to say, right, test away. Yeah. And those of you who are negative, come back because there is no point in doing this just for the sake of doing it. We're now in the ludicrous situation in which Boris Johnson, Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak, and now Keir Starmer having laughed at Johnson and Prime Minister's questions <laughs> are all isolating because they've either been pinged or Keir Starmer's kid has tested positive. And there is no sense of the magnitude of what it means to be in position of political power and how you should do everything you can to remain in person in parliament. You know, test yourself hourly if it makes you feel better. And as long as you're negative, come back in. I mean, it's just, it's a it's a really childish way, actually, of dealing with what is a very situ serious situation. And it's also completely impractical because the same arguments that people have been making throughout the last 15 or however long we've been through this now, months, that many, many people who can't afford to take time off work, who can't afford to um, self-isolate, won't. Yeah. And so the system is unequal, it's impractical, and it, you know, moving out of the pandemic, it uh, it kind of kind of shines a negative light on everything, which is that most people will, if they're pinged, test negative because they've either been vaccinated or had the virus. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the point to emphasise, isn't it? That, you know, there has never been a self, a sensible isolation policy throughout yeah. this, throughout this period. And now, you know, people are isolating when they've been double jabbed, when they're testing negative for the virus. I mean, it's complete nonsense. Isn't I it? mean, the two, because it was last week, I think in total, including the pinged people and all the school kids and all the rest of it, and people who've actually tested positive, it's like 1.8 million people sent to self-isolation. Two biggest groups that school kids and people have been pinged. Now, school mm. kids, as we know, it's these big bubbles. There's no guarantee that they would necessarily even have come into close contact with someone who was the positive case in that bubble. And then, of course, the app, as we know, is not exactly a perfect instrument, shall yeah. we say. You know, there's stories abound of people getting pinged because their next door neighbour, who they're separated via a brick wall, <laughs> has tested positive for coronavirus. So it is incredibly chaotic. You wonder why it has to be the 16th of August, why it can't possibly be brought in sooner. You, we've now got into this kind of special pleading industry by industry as to yeah. who should be put on this scheme that Johnson and Sunak were hoping to jump on where you just test and be able to go back to work at is, the same is, time. Is there really a scheme? I think people, a lot of people thought they made that up. <laughs> well, Gove did get on it earlier yeah, as yeah. well as various other government ministers so it seemed to be pre-existing. But the, the, no, the, the reaction to that whole will they won't they sort of pantomime <laughs> of going on the scheme was it was it even worse than Johnson and Sunak <laughs> trying to shirk their own ridiculous rules? Was this kind of like righteous, you must self-isolate? You just think, <laughs> why? I mean, Boris yeah. Johnson got COVID and went on telly having COVID. We all know he's had COVID. Yeah. What is the point in this rather than a kind of, this is what's happened with masks. In fact, in some level with vaccines and vaccine passports and all these kinds of measures, it's we're moving away from it being a necessary step to protect vulnerable people, which is what this is all about, is stopping old people from dying. Uh, and it's more becoming a, are you the right kind of person? One thing that has has been good about the pandemic though, is the fact that because you've had transport workers obviously getting mm. pinged on mass and train services having to close because you've also had in some cases i think it's pretty much isolated at this point but you know um shop shelves being empty because of the yep. fact that loads mm -hmm. of supermarket workers it's really driven home to people more so than the previous two waves have of how 
disproportionate and how kind of focused really lockdown was. I mean, the stay at home order was only really ever doable from a, for a pretty small, quite affluent section of society. I mean, yeah. the ONS had these numbers out in May, I think. Mm. It's just over a quarter of people who work from home yeah. last year. If you think about the media discussion, it was all about how we're all in this together and we're all sat at home watching all of these things. All and the Zoom and everything. And everything all like our that, lives yeah. have changed forever and this yeah. is a new way I've of I've got time living. now to go outside and look at the blue sky and ponder our place and you're like all this <laughs> kind of crap, right? That was just a very narrow section of society. Meanwhile, mm. there's a hell of a lot of people outside the people who are furloughed, obviously, who are going to work every day, so are more exposed to the virus. Than yeah. anyone else, if nothing else, had nothing to do with their evenings, but returned to their cramped intergenerational accommodation often. And it just reminds us that, in terms of the lockdown fanatics, they have to own the fact that if you wanted to design a policy which effectively protected the affluent but kept working class people out working mm. during a pandemic, if you wanted a policy which allowed the profits of huge corporates to soar while small businesses get shut down and get hammered it would be lockdown now, yeah. now you know whether or not you still want to justify it that's fine mm. but at the same time they have to own that and i think in a way this pandemic that we're having at the moment has just reminded people that this wasn't something that we were all in it together we've never been all in it together in that sense one thing many of us have come to realise after practically a year and a half of lockdown is that we really do live most of our lives online And if we're not careful, we can end up giving away far too much personal information that can end up in the hands of all kinds of other parties where we don't want it to be. If you want to keep yourself safe and keep your information private, you have to start using a VPN, a virtual private network. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. First of all, ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers, which is pretty ironic considering that that almost defeats the purpose of having a VPN. ExpressVPN does not do this. They've even developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes sure their VPN servers are incapable of storing any data at all. Then there's the speed. ExpressVPN now uses Lightway, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. I've experimented with other VPNs in the past, and they would sometimes really slow down my connection. But ExpressVPN is always blazing fast, and it lets me stream videos in HD quality with no buffering at all. It's also really easy to use. You don't need any technical skills. You just fire up the app and tap one button to connect. I've even got my grandparents using it. You really don't need to be tech savvy to get it going. And it's not just me saying all of this. CNET, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use the Spike podcast link, expressvpn.com slash spiked, and you can get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked today to learn more. Talking of all in it together, one of the people who was heavily criticised for you know breaking the rules early on, probably the most famous rule breaker, was uh, Dominic Cummings. And this week, this is you know one of the biggest stories. This week, he did his um, BBC interview with Laura Koonsberg. Um, he talked a bit about um, his excuse for breaking the rules back then. He talked a bit about um, the government's decision making. You know the kind of um, trolley problem, as as he often refers to it. 
but didn't we really just learn a lot more about the man than the people he wanted to criticise? <laughs> yeah. What a drama queen is what I thought. <laughs> what a teenage drama queen. I mean, even to the extent of saying there was more going on with the reason why I went to that castle and it was security threats. And, you know, can you give us proof? No, it'll all come out later if I'm forced. It's like, oh, just tell us if it was or if it wasn't. That's mm. kind of pathetic. But the, you know, on a serious level, the most shocking thing, which I suppose some of us uh, assumed or suspected, but to come out with it in such an outright manner, was his megalomaniac declaration that he and other in the Vote Leave set were plotting to get rid of Johnson, you know, days. Laura Kinsberg said, oh, month. And he said, no, days, mm. hours after he was elected. And when she she was challenged, challenged him on that, he said, well, I had to just get things done. Just think, who is this guy? Yeah. But he's um, he is purely a creation of the of the political elite themselves. This is what happens when you have technocratic measures. Let's everyone tried to paint Cummings as the mastermind of Brexit and some kind of political genius. He really was just an alg- a, a overinflated algorithm man who genuinely at one point believed that he could run the country from uh you know in a little room behind Boris Johnson's office. And that should be a warning sign to all of us to take democracy very seriously because the man who's painted as the figurehead of a democratic movement, the Brexit vote, doesn't understand what the word <laughs> democracy means. Yeah, I mean, Tom, what did you make of it? I mean, it, obviously we've heard these kind of um, sort of anti-democratic musings from Dominic Cummings before. You know, remember when he spoke to Parliament, he talked about how he essentially wanted to appoint a kind of COVID king <laughs> to oversee the whole process because, you know, democratic government could go swing in this, in yeah. this period of crisis. And, you know, he wants people who understand the data and all that stuff. But what did you, what did you make of this particular revelation? Because it's really shocking. No, it's, it's, it's really shocking. But as you say, it's of a piece with stuff that he's previously said. You mm-hmm. know, his ideal form of government is a kind of dictatorship of weirdos. If you remember that yeah. phrase that he used when he was calling for all of these data geeks people and everyone really, to really join clever. the civil service. <laughs> all these really, really clever people who read all the sl- same very niche blogs as him. I mean, I do wonder if part of this was just to try and boost the subscriptions for his Substack. He's yeah. on Substack now, of course. He is. Um, but the other thing that was interesting about it was one of his alleged strengths, and I'm sure there's some truth to this, was his ability to kind of, you know, read public opinion or at least read focus groups mm. uh, to try and understand the public mood, to try and come at the public on their level or whatever with your campaign messaging. This has gone down so badly. To the yeah. extent that it's registered at all, it's mm. gone down very badly. I mean, people comparing it to the Prince Andrew interview. I mean, his stock with the public in particular was not exactly high after Barnard Castle and all that stuff. It just looks incredibly self-serving. And then to come out very openly and saying that this guy that you elected back in 2019, I was quite willing to just kind of push him out because he's an idiot and I know better. Mm. The idea that that would ingratiate himself to anyone Anyone is very, very strange. I mean, he's got enough enemies in the press. He's got enough enemies in the public. I mean, the other thing that I think is quite interesting in comments, because he is really, despite raging against the EU, a bureaucratic, technocratic institution, he is a technocrat through yeah. and through. And I think what we see with his comments in that interview with a lot of the deeply authoritarian measures he not only backs, but would even probably go further with in relation to lockdown and all the rest of it, is that if all you care about is delivery, like if all you care about is we need to get this goal ticked off, it's in the minds of these people, just green lights, the most tremendous authoritarianism. Like yeah. the two go really hand in hand, it's, you know, not to 
make an allusion to the trains running on time. But you get the point. Like mm-hmm. if this, if that is your only interest, and if you think that's what good government means, then you will happily say things like, "Let's have a COVID dictator and let's like, oust Boris Johnson hours afterwards because we know best." That's the kind of mindset that we're dealing with. Yeah, and before before the interview aired, this kind of story was that um, Boris had said, "Well, everyone dying of COVID is over eighty. This was kind of in the middle of the between the first wave and the second wave, saying, "You know, the lockdown was a mistake. We need to recalibrate. We need to." sort of rethink and and maybe Cummings thought that that would ingratiate himself with the public but hadn't people just realized that maybe he's just a bit untrustworthy you know leaking all these private conversations these things that, pe- that the prime minister has said in the heat of the moment when he's looking for for advice i mean doesn't it feel as if even that came across badly yeah no i mean there there is as we know the government made decisions in relation to um, how care homes were managed and in relation to the way in which positive COVID patients were passed into care homes and failings, that meant they didn't really hold much stock initially about the safety of um, people over 80 and and the medically vulnerable. So we know all that. Mm. But what we also know is that when you're in a crisis, anyone who's been in a team making decisions, this isn't to apologise for Boris Johnson, says things. You've got to air things. You've got to throw everything out on the table. I mean, we were all laughing, you know, a few months ago when his first interview when he was talking about Johnson having a mad idea of being uh, injected, injected with COVID, with COVID. Live on <laughs> and you think all right but like maybe at eleven thirty at night when you've had you know 7,000 briefings you might mm. just start thinking things and then you'd leave them in the morning and there there's nothing endearing about a leak who's doing so as a kind of like a almost like a dying star in order to try and suck up some uh basically some popularity for himself what actually is the question I've always asked is well, Mr. Moral, why didn't you say anything then? It's mm. no good saying it now. If you want the kudos for being the guy who knew that this was wrong, why didn't you say it at the time to make an intervention to stop people being infected in care homes? It's no good bitching about it now when it makes absolutely no difference to anyone. Also, isn't he just wrong? I mean, we did have three national lockdowns, mm. you know, been under lockdown for longer than we've been out of it, it seems like. And if and when not under lockdown, we've had various restrictions of 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 some sort. I mean... It sort of revived this idea that was prevalent before the second wave that if only we'd have done something a bit harder in September, all would be fine. I mean, it's just nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, but this is the argument that is always going to be reheated. And as mm. you say, on this point about what is said in private and what is said in public, even where government is concerned, it's a very important distinction. I mean, yeah. you know, everyone wants transparency and accountability, of course, up to a point. But at the same time, people are going to have conversations in which they air things, as Ella was saying, and not otherwise would want to hear. But also in general, you, you have to be held accountable for what you actually do, not mm. what you say, you know, um, in private. And that's one of the things which I think is actually quite dangerous about the level of these kinds of you know um whatsapp messages that he's been slowly leaking out on his blog and on his twitter account and all the rest of it is that when you have a situation which even in government it's impossible to have those kinds of conversations because there's no trust yeah because everyone could is easily briefing against one another it can be really corrosive now i'm not saying that you should you know impose some sort of authoritarian measures which is what we're going to come on to in a minute in order to stop things (laughs) leaking out but at the same time i think in this case, because of the fact that Cummings has no loyalty to anyone really, um, it just shows how corrosive that can be when everything is, is so, has to be so out in the open. There can't be any kind of situation in which you can just work out what to do before you act in public, as it were. Yeah, and, and I think it's also, it's, it's, it's the bitchiness of the leaks, right? Mm. I mean, it's, it, it's, not, it's not just that, it's not necessarily that they're revealing anything to us that is hidden, that the government is trying to keep hidden, um, that the public shouldn't know. It's, it's just gossipy, essentially. Mm.
One thing I know all listeners to the Spike podcast have got in common is that you're looking for something that's going to engage your brain, that's going to expand your mind. You don't want to waste your time with mindless entertainment that's going to turn off your brain. And that's where Wondrium comes in. This really is the streaming service for you. With Wondrium, I've been inspired and captivated by their historical series on everything from the hidden history of Egypt and the great revolutions of modern history to their series on more modern challenges and controversies from cryptocurrency to the opioid epidemic. Wondrium has thousands of audio and video learning experiences to feed our curiosity that goes so much further than what you'd find just searching the web. Wondrium's content is fun and exciting and it gives us access to a world of knowledge from top experts and storytellers. It's got documentaries, tutorials, how-to guides, and more that cover practically any subject you can imagine. Plus, there's all of our favorite courses from The Great Courses Plus. So join me and experience your own mind-blowing moments with Wondrium. Right now, listeners to the Spiked podcast can get this extra special time-limited offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Don't wait. Go to wondrium.com slash spiked to sign up right now. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Wondrium.com slash spiked. So we should talk a bit about um, the government's plan for leakers. Uh, Priti Patel has essentially announced uh, amendments to the Official Secrets Act that could result in journalists essentially landing, um, ending up with 14 years in prison for um, embarrassing leaks, for leaks that sort of damage the reputation of the government. Um, this is extremely authoritarian, obviously. But Tom, I mean, is this just of a piece with what we've come to expect now from the Conservative government. We're um, going on the past 18 months, it definitely looks like it. I mean, their answer to everything is 10 years in prison. Mm. I mean, you know, you desecrate a statue, 10 years in prison. You lie on your travel form, 10 years in prison. You know, you leak government information and secrets to the press, 14 years in prison. Yeah. This is literally their answer to absolutely everything. Now, of course, you know, this, unfortunately, a lot of these kind of deeply authoritarian kind of measures have been you know, in place for a long time. I mean, in so many different ways, it's not as if everything was perfectly liberal before this government showed up. But if you look at anything from, I say, from protests to statues to this, mm. to that, just the willingness to in indulge in deeply authoritarian policies. Now, if we're talking about something like leaking, it's quite clear what they're getting out of this. You know, yeah. governments don't want things to leak. There's plenty of things they'd like to keep secret from journalists and the broader public. That's pretty obvious. I think with these other areas, you do start to wonder why it is that they're doing this you know why it is that they engage in such over-the-top yeah. disproportionate displays of authoritarianism and i think i can't help but come to the conclusion that it is just this kind of incredible authoritarian gesture politics it mm. just shows that you're doing something it shows that you're taking something seriously rather than actually thinking through whether this is just or right or will even have any impact whatsoever on the problem is that you claim to be worried about you just engage in this um, and i think that's something which is really quite alarming because you're basically just taking people's civil liberties away, potentially, for the sake of making a point. Yeah. And that, I think, is a very alarming part of all and of it's, this. And it's, a lot of this seems to be either enhancing sort of sentences for things that are already crimes, for instance, defacing a statue. It's obviously, you can't go around vandalising things. Everyone knows that. Mm. Um, or, you know, kind of creating crimes out of nothing. But again, for what seems like political reasons, you know, 
10 years for making a nuisance at a protest. It seems as if a lot of the, you know, a lot of the press coverage says that that's sort of in response to Extinction Rebellion. But again, there are, you know, there are already laws that stop you from obstructing people, stop you from, you know, yeah, smashing your, windows. And you can't yourself. glue yourself to the DLR. It's yeah. not fine already. It's not yeah. as if they say, well, that's their freedom. <laughs> that's not what happens. You don't need yeah. a new law mm. to yeah. deal with that. So yeah, yeah, as you say, it's just a sort of gesture politics. It's the superficiality of it that it's really worrying. So another, you know, Prince Vassal's on a roll now. And one of the other things that <laughs> one she's... down after the other. Yeah. But, well, it's, I think... But, with this thing I'm about to talk about, she's had a hard time around the hostile environment. There has been some pushback in relation to protests. And I think in a bid to kind of curry favour, she's now announced to the celebration and applause mm. of wide range of um, contemporary feminists that she's going to, quote, beef up police powers and beef up laws in order to, for example, criminalise wolf whistling and to do something about street harassment in the wake of the murder of Sarah Everard. Now, uh, you know, the superficiality of beefing up police powers to deal with wolf whistling, mm. which is ex- really what this is about. I'm not even trying to make it sound more ridiculous than it is. Is, you know, is appalling because what you're essentially saying is that you're going to extend police powers to intervene into women's life in a much greater way than they ever have done before. You're uh, cementing the idea that we need women need protective policies, cementing the, the, the sexist idea that the guy who shouts the perverted things really believes is that women are lesser than men and that they are not able to stand up for themselves because street harassment is all about intimidation. It's got nothing to do with bloody sex education or Me Too or any crap like that. It's a power play. And, you know, the end result is that you have no debate about this in society and it mm. will affect, it will genuinely affect women's lives because it has a knock-on effect for when you come to make an argument about abortion rights or anything like that, when you're talking about women's freedom, you in the background, you've got this narrative that women need to be protected and can't make their own choices. So it's incredibly illiberal things happening in the name of women with no one but Priti Patel and Nimco Ali. I mean, talk about cronyism and, you know, <laughs> all the stuff that we've set, talked about in this podcast. Carrie Simmons's best mate, Nimco Ali, is at the head of this new strategy and calling for evidence to give Priti Patel the powers to beef up um, laws. Everyone is, is you know, there's lots of people, Sisters Uncut and, and other groups who are very critical of government when it comes to police overreach in some areas. But when it's police overreach for people they don't like, yeah. the perpetrators that they don't like, like, you know, idiots on the street who shout hot legs or something at you, then they're fine with Men it. in white vans yeah. is the, the typical That's target of this. But this is, an, this is a good example as well, because all of this is being talked about in the wake of the horrific killing of Sarah Everard. To talk about wolf whistling. Mm. Yeah in the same breath as a crime as horrendous and thankfully rare, that's why it's so shocking, it's because these things are so rare, crimes such as that is quite unpleasant, actually. Mm. Um, And it also gets to that point about how, because things are, there's certain crimes and there's certain um, issues which are incredibly difficult to tackle. You know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the uh, rape conviction rates and all the rest of it. I mean, Luke Gittos has written about how sometimes that discussion can be a little bit misleading, but nevertheless, this is a very difficult crime to convict for always has been or always will be you hope more could be done to overcome that so rather than talking much more deeply about that issue you know how could you improve the way in which things are investigated how could you urge people to come forward whatever it is it's just a kind of question about how can we engage in some sort of showy measure which yeah. will almost distract from the more substance of the issue or you take something like the sarah everard case a situation in one complete psychopath mm. you know the most depraved kind of crime imaginable the sort of thing where there will always unfortunately be a handful of these people and unfortunately sometimes they will slip through the net you would hope they wouldn't end up in the police force or places <laughs> yeah. but nevertheless 
again, rather than just be able to talk openly about these things as an issue, to even, you know, reassure people to a certain extent that this is the reason we find this so horrific is that it is so rare. You just engage in authoritarian gesture politics. It's much easier. Doesn't leave any of the problems unsolved. It actually creates new problems. Yeah. But why the you know why the hell not do it for the retweets? That seems to be the way in which people go about things these days. And and it is in many ways. It's kind of a piece of with the kind of woke politics that we talk about so much. I mean, obviously, you know, Pretty Patel's strategy is in line with the the view of trying to make misogyny a hate crime. The war on statues is um, or the war on statue defaces is justified on the basis that you know, attacking a statue causes people emotional harm. I mean, it's just, this is just the reverse of it, isn't it? Or, you know, it's just coming from the Tories this time. Yeah, it pretty much is copying and pasting the, um, you know, the sort of censorious bent of identity politics that suggests that you as an individual yourself aren't meant to relate to society, but that society has to bend to your own individual vulnerability. So the whole, that a law has to be passed on the basis that some women find it scarring to hear a wolf whistle. And there is nothing to celebrate about wolf whistling or cat calling or street harassment. Uh, you know, it, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. It can sometimes be very threatening. But the idea that you would have to pass such such a serious thing as criminalising it or making it a law or beefing up police powers in order to reflect the vulnerability and the fragility of a small number of women, never mind the fact that generations of women before us, the, the fact that I'm able to sit here and speak freely and enjoy my life as a woman in the 21st century is because mothers and grandmothers before me turned around when they were shouted at in the street and it said something or punched the guy. I mean, change doesn't just come from laws being filtered yeah. down. It happens organically. And unless we start asserting the fact that all this kind of gesture politics really only makes people feel more vulnerable and more fragile and more self-obsessed in this kind of horrendous narcissism and um, the less anything will actually material change for women or anyone else i wanted to sort of end on a on a lighter story a more ridiculous story although it does relate very heavily to what we've just been talking about um a man in bedfordshire has been basically slapped with a police record for whistling the bob the builder theme tune now this is considered by police to be a non-crime hate incident these incidents, funny enough, they don't even come from the law. They were just created by a quango, which is even stranger. They can end up on your um, on your record. So if an employer, for instance, asks for an enhanced DBS check, they will find out if you've committed a non-crime hate incident. There's been over 100,000 of these incidents recorded in the last couple of years. I think um, a substantial proportion of those are children committing, doing playground mm -hmm. insults. I mean, I, I've been racking my brains as a thing. We don't know that much about this case um, because it's not a proper crime. So we, you just don't learn as much about it. I'm racking my brains as a thing. What could be racist about whistling the Bob the Builder theme? You laugh, but it's not funny. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I'm tempted to chuckle, but for that individual who now has to have a, you know, a criminal record. Quasi-criminal record. But, yeah, it's, but, it's, but still, you know, that can show up on some checks. That, yeah. You know, even having to be addressed by a police officer is no small thing. Mm. You know, having to interact with police officers is a thing that people shouldn't have to do unless they have very definitely committed a crime or need help. And so the, you know, but the whole nature of this is, of course, Bob the Builder could be racist. 
because that because what's considered to be racist now is so subjective and we've talked about this many times broadened out to such an extent that anything you can do, you do mm. could be considered racist sexist ableist any of these ists if the person who it is directed at considers it to, it to be so and that's the position of the law you know that's yeah. not just like a you know that's not a crazy idea off twitter it is legally the case that you know it's the perception of the victim or any third mm. party that determines whether something is racist or homophobic or whatever it might be mm. I, th- I think the example that really hammered this home for me i mean ridiculous examples of this abound but when um amber rudd then home secretary mm. gave a speech about immigration at tory party conference and then some academic from oxford or thereabouts um basically registered this as a non-crime hate incident i don't know if that was later expunged mm. i don't know if amber rudd is in need of an advanced dbs check these days but nevertheless <laughs> the fact that that was ever on the tally mm. tells you something and of course um fair cop and all of the campaigners who've um, pushed for more information on this is you know it's what not for the hundred and fifty thousand examples of these non-crime hate incidents and we've got to recognize how authoritarian this is because it can seem a little bit silly the examples are often silly and people aren't being locked up but not only is the impact on people's jobs is very serious what's also quite worrying is that the way in which it's discussed as a kind of way to clock crime yeah before a crime is committed so you are getting into pre-crime kind mm, of philip mm. k dick territory there which is worrying and the other thing, as you say, Fraser, is that this, there was never an act of parliament that said yeah. we need to create this kind of middle ground quasi-criminal category in which we put people that we've got to keep an eye on. I mean, this is really quite alarming and it's just something which has just sort of grown out of the police quango blob, really. And that is something that really needs to be taken up because of the fact that it just does feel like at the moment, you know, whether with the discussions we've been having about the way in which hate crime will be extended via some of the Law Commission's proposals, which people have been talking about, extending it to Goths and everyone else, yeah. um, through to the hate crime bill in Scotland, all the things that the government has planned. These kinds of laws and measures are proliferating. They're mm. not going away. They're yeah. not getting beaten back. And it's only going to get worse. And the thing is, you would think and you would hope that when the examples get as ridiculous as they have recently, not just with non-crime, hate incidents, but some of the actual arrests, you know, Darren Grimes getting pulled in for an interview with the police, you would think that's the moment people would start to be like, hold on. <laughs> but that hasn't really happened. Yeah. Um, and that's something outside of a lot of noble, noble exceptions, of course, that hasn't really happened. And that's something that's really long. The other thing which is worth saying is that this whole non-crime hate incident thing has really warped our discussion of hate crime because the yeah. two get completely conflated. Mm-hmm. Hate crime's a tricky category anyway, but nevertheless, the two get watched together. So every so often you see a report saying it's gone through the roof, yeah. when a lot of the time it's this that's yeah. gone through the roof. It's whistling Bob the Builder. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.